0: They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights. Our
1: story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up.
0: We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind.
1: We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of America liberty. Ideas spread. They can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government.
0: Welcome to Episode 7 of Decentralized Revolution, the Mises Caucus podcast. My name's Aaron. I'm your host. And my guest today is Michael Meharry, Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center. If you are in the orbit of the Mises Caucus, you know who those guys are. Uh, He also runs a blog or two and a couple of podcasts, I think, that we'll talk about. And uh, he's the author author of three books on nullification. Mike, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good, Aaron. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, We uh, at the Mises Caucus are really focused on decentralization and and how that is uh, kind of a key, uh, you know, I don't think anybody who really looks at it thinks that libertarians are going to, oh, we're going to elect a president and right. have a Senate and we're all yeah. going to go from there. So tell us a little bit about the 10th Amendment Center, what Michael Bolden started and what you guys are doing now.
1: Yeah. So for me personally, decentralization is near and dear to my heart. That's, that's really the core of my political philosophy, at least in terms of practical politics. I think that's the the best path forward in terms of, you know, creating space for liberty is devolving power away from the top, pushing it down towards more state and then local. And then ultimately, we'd love it to be at the individual level. But uh, I, I think we have to go through a process to get there. And the Constitution creates a um, some kind of framework within the American system that can help move us toward a more decentralized system. Uh We've obviously moved far away from what the Constitution was originally intended. The structure of American government was originally meant to be decentralized with most power remaining at the state and then ultimately at the local and people level. Uh, Obviously, today we've flipped that on its head and we have a centralized nation state with virtually all power resting in Washington, D.C., and I would argue that that has not boded well for us. Uh, I use the analogy a lot that, you know, it's like uh, most people understand that we don't want monopoly when it comes to, you know, an economic situation. Nobody would say, uh, Mike, it'd be a great idea if we had one grocer, you know, sell every groceries to everybody in the entire United States. Everybody would say, well, that would be awful. We'd have higher prices. We'd have bad service, less selection, all of these things that go along with monopoly. And yet these same people almost always support monopoly government. And I think it's dumb. So that's really what we're working for at the 10th Amendment Center. We use the constitution as a tool uh, for decentralization, using state and local power to undermine unconstitutional and, uh, and really just unpopular federal authority, because we can do that within the system as it exists. Do you think that's how we got from
0: 1789 to to now? Is, is states and localities not uh, doing nullification and not asserting their rights? Like, why Why did they let that go? Uh, that's one thing that I've always been yeah. uh, intrigued about, why Why politicians at that local level uh, would give up power.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of things that play into that. And I think if you look at the history of the United States in a broader perspective, it was by and large relatively decentralized until we got to the end of the Civil War. And, you know, that drastically changed things. Lincoln had a vision for one nation, uh, he was a nationalist. Uh, this idea that the union cannot be split apart, and that has really dominated political thought in the United States ever since. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, in in many ways, it is a shift in in ideas and understanding. and And the powers that be were successful in making us all think that you know centralized is better. I, you know, this was a worldwide phenomenon. We saw this in in many other countries as well. Um, I think from a practical standpoint, you're exactly right. You know, a lot of times libertarians will will uh, rag on the Constitution and rightfully so and they'll quote Spooner and, you know, that whole quote that uh, either authorized such a thing or it was powerless to stop it. And I think there's an assumption buried in there that's kind of dumb, to be quite frank. Uh, this idea that a, co- a contract could be self-enforcing. No contract is self-enforcing. If you and I entered into an agreement about something, there's, you know, there would have to be some enforcement mechanism involved. You wouldn't let me just go change the terms of that contract without going to, you know, the proper authorities uh, in order to make sure the contract is enforced. Well, the proper authorities in the constitutional system are the people of the states. And unfortunately, we've been browbeat into believing that if you believe in decentralization and uh, quote unquote states rights, I hate that term because the state really doesn't have a right, but uh, state power, state authority, uh, that you're, you know, you're either racist or you hate people. (laughs) So, you know, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle when it comes to the battle of ideas. But I think the good news is we are seeing a lot more emphasis today on decentralization. I think a lot of people both on the left and the right are starting to realize, you know, maybe having one size fits all government from Washington, D.C. isn't the greatest idea. You know, maybe we don't need Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump to make decisions for 320 million people.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And one thing I've kind of advocated is using the vanity of of politicians like Gavin Newsom and and Andrew Cuomo. Right. If I if I could get into their ear, I would say, hey, Gavin, you could be the president of the California Republic and have your own, you could be, you could do whatever you want, you know. So, and of course, in some cases, we libertarians would, California is a great case. California would probably be a little worse off if it broke off. Of course, they'd have to pay their own bill. They wouldn't have the Federal Reserve and all that. But that's kind of the point is uh, Jeff Deist makes this point uh, all the time. It's like, I'm not going to, you know, I went to, a a pretty fancy grad school for journalism. And all my friends there are, you know, uh, very, very left-wing urban, whatever. I'm never going to convince them on, uh, on 2A and, and stuff like that. But, um, so in other words, I'm saying, Hey, we, we kind of need a divorce and and that, that might, that might work.
1: Yeah, obviously. And I think, you know, the idea of, It was a Supreme Court justice. I think it might have been Brandy's who kind of coined the term 50 laboratories of ideas. Uh, You know, certainly there would be some some states that would be really bad if they stood on their own. And uh, there would be some states that are really good. And, And I think really, you know, in some ways it really depends on what your priorities are in terms of liberty. It blew my mind a couple of years ago when I went to Los Angeles and went into a marijuana shop for the first time coming from Kentucky at the time, you know. I was in a store where I could plunk down money and buy something that in Kentucky would land me behind a K, you know, behind bars. Now, a lot of people would think, Oh, Kentucky is much more, uh, you know, much more free because Kentucky has good gun laws, which they, you know, it does, but it really depends on your properties. California is actually good on some things when it comes to Liberty, they tend to be more resistant to the surveillance state. So, you know, I think we could we could definitely use this competition in jurisdictions and see what works and see what doesn't and let people sort themselves out. You know, if you want to live in a perpetual welfare state, go live in California. And if you want guns, go to Kentucky. And and, and that would allow people at least some freedom of movement and some ability to uh, seek out what's important to them in terms of liberty. Again, instead of trying this one size fits on, I get a little bit disturbed about uh, a tendency i see in the libertarian movement to want to try to use centralized power for liberty i call them the liberty enforcement squad you know we're going to use the supreme court and we're going to use the bill of rights and we're going to force all of these states to do liberty and it never works because the centralized power doesn't care about liberty you know you end up creating one size fits all non-libertarian solutions and every once in a while you get this little crumb i guess it keeps people coming back to that trough but um you know, I, I think I love the title of this podcast because, again, this is really—you know—you go to my website, com and the tagline is "Decentralized for Peace and Freedom." Yep. Uh, and so that's what you know—that's what I'm all about.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about these ideas of decentralization in regards to what's going on right now. Um, uh, Ohio is, is pretty locked down right yep. now. We're we're not supposed to go outside. Uh, we can, we're, we're allowed to walk our dogs and go get medicine and food and,
1: well, that's nice. uh, yeah, it, it, I'm <laughs> glad
0: that Mike, uh, little, little Mike DeWine, uh, has allowed me that freedom. Um, but you know, we've been, we've all been seeing it. There's people on Twitter and this and that, oh, libertarians look, uh, this is a crisis. And of course your ideology is not equipped to, to deal with this. And we need, uh, You know, if we only had Obama back in charge, then, then, uh, you know, we would we could all whip this really quickly. So what do you think um, we can do as as decentralist libertarians um, to constructively add to the, the, the debate over what's going on right now?
1: Well I can think we can actually point to some uh, practical examples of where decentralization is working and uh, one example is right here in in my home state of Florida uh, Governor DeSantis has taken a rather decentralized uh, and uh, loose approach he's he's issued some edicts uh, you know we can't Uh, all of the restaurants are closed in their dining areas. But he's given the counties a great deal of autonomy. And his reasoning is, I was actually reading a statement that he made yesterday. His reasoning is that the vast majority of COVID-19 cases here in Florida are in South Florida. So uh, Miami-Dade, Broward County, Palm Beach, uh, I think it's like two thirds of the cases. Whereas the county where I'm in, Nassau County, which is in far Northeast Florida, we've got one. Uh, So why implement a, a policy of complete lockdown when you have a, a number of states, uh, counties that don't have any cases at all. And then you have counties like uh, mine that, you know, have, have very few cases. So what we've seen is we've seen counties kind of taking up the role. And if you go south of me to Jacksonville, uh, you know, the mayor's, uh, he's got them on lockdown down there that everything's closed. It's, it's essentially a, a do not travel order. Um, whereas here, you know, basically the only thing that's really closed is the beach, which is annoying, but (laughs) that's, that's all, but again, we're seeing people being able to make decisions locally that, that makes sense for the local conditions instead of trying to ramrod this one size fits all policy. And it seems to be working here in Florida and, and, you know, God forbid that Donald Trump is making one size fits all because certainly the situation in Wyoming is not the same as the situation in New York state. Um, so you know I, I think part of what drives this idea of centralization is this notion that we have these wise, benevolent policymakers who understand what's going on and they're gonna make good decisions. These people are idiots they don't know anything. Yep. <laughs> you know I, I've worked with a lot of these folks in in state government and and I can tell you from experience that most of them don't know anything other than how to get elected. Uh, they're not experts in any area of policy, and they don't tend to listen to policy experts because their motivation and their incentives are to maintain power and expand power and to look good and to play it safe and to make sure that I don't get caught holding the bag. All of the incentives are perverse when it comes to political decision making. Uh, So I say we diversify that out as much as possible instead of letting these one size fits all solutions be crammed down everybody's throat because they generally don't work. And I'm pretty certain that what we're seeing now is uh, a a lot of overkill and we are going to uh, wreck havoc on the economy that didn't necessarily need to be done because everybody's overreacting, but you know, yeah. I'm not a disease expert. So I'll yeah, say yeah. that up front.
0: Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of in that camp too. And, and one other little thing I want to add to what you said is there may be people who are infectious disease experts, but their recommendations as to what 350 million people should do or, or 12 million, if we're just talking about Ohio, um, they, they're not social scientists, they're not economists, they're, they're not any of these things. And so they're, um, I, I really liked what you said about politicians. They're, they're risk averse. They mm-hmm. don't want to be seen as the guy who let X happen. So they're going right. to, they're, they're willing to, to, to overreact. And, and speaking of overreaction, um, you know, many of us libertarians have been uh, saying for the last few years that, uh, another crash is coming that a 2008 type crash, maybe even worse was coming. And, uh, we don't, you know, the Austrian theory can't predict exactly when that's mm-hmm. going to happen, but it gives us a tool to understand when it does happen, why it does. And I think, am I wrong? Or is this already started? We're in a recession, maybe oh, yeah. a depression already, right?
1: Absolutely. I think so. And and so I'll put, off take off my 10th amendment center hat and put on my shift gold hat. I, I, Maintain the website over at shiftcold.com. Oh, great. And uh, so, you know, I write about this stuff every day. And uh, I think that, yes, we are in the midst of what's going to be a-, a big economic downturn just by virtue of the fact that you've effectively, you know, shuttered so many businesses. You can't have no impact on that. But what you're seeing in the stock market, uh, the, the maneuvering that the Federal Reserve is doing, all of this was in play before coronavirus showed up. And yep. uh, I actually did a short video over on the Shift Gold uh, Facebook page yesterday, just kind of explaining the fact that we started to see the shakiness in the stock market and the economy back in 2018 when the Fed was trying to hike interest rates and, and quote unquote normalize. And, uh, you know, the, the Fed was able to, at that time, stop interest rate hikes, it stopped um, shedding assets off its balance sheet. Uh, It pivoted last year to three rounds of interest rate cuts. So we were already in the midst of extraordinary monetary policy even before. I mean, we never really got out of it after 2008 and we pivoted back to it in 2019. This is just coronavirus is the pin that pricked the bubble. At this point, it really doesn't matter what happens to coronavirus. Everybody's going to blame coronavirus, but coronavirus could be solved today. We could all go back to work. I think the air is going to come out of the bubbles, not because of the coronavirus, but because we were on an unsound bubble economy before this even started. And uh, I think the, the the cure that we're seeing, I mean, the, for goodness sake, the Federal Reserve just uh, announced what is amounts to quantitative easing to infinity. It's going to buy an unlimited amount of uh, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities. It's also going to buy corporate bonds. Uh, it's going to pump trillions of dollars into the economy. At a time when people aren't working and producing stuff, so in simplest terms, you've got more dollars chasing less stuff. That is a recipe for hyperinflation, and you know I would not be surprised. Peter Schiff said that hyperinflation has gone from the worst case scenario to the most probable scenario, and I I think he's right about that, and people should be aware of that and prepared.
0: Uh, we'll talk about what we think of as, as hyperinflation, is there a specific definition of that? It doesn't have to get to Zimbabwe levels to be hyperinflation, does it?
1: I mean, there probably is. I don't know the, the technical definition of, I I, I would venture to guess that there's a percentage, uh, but, you know, really just even, uh, at this point, uh, a four or five, um, percent inflation rate is going to be extremely detrimental to the U.S. economy. And the problem is, you know, normally the the policymakers, the, the solution for inflation is to push interest rates up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're in an economy that is, uh, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. We've got the national debt. We've got corporate debt that is at record levels. We've got uh, individual consumer debt that's at record levels. Uh, You can't sustain higher interest rates in this environment. That's why the Fed is so desperate to push interest rates down. If they just let things go, if we went, you know, let the free market determine interest rates, it'd be way higher, and uh, you know everybody'd be defaulting all over the place. Uh, So, you know, this is a prime example again of centralization and the havoc that it that it wreaks. And you know, they're just doubling down. uh, Not only the Federal Reserve, but the federal government. I mean, they they've just passed or they're getting ready to pass, I guess, what, $2 trillion stimulus package. Yeah. Um, I was lamenting the fact that uh, earlier today and just to, to look at how much the political climate has changed in the United States. You remember in 2008, you know, we had TARP and we had the bailouts and, and uh, we had the Obama stimulus and all of the right was. Outraged, You know, how can we have all of this spending and it created the tea party and now all of the people that were uh, marching in tea party rallies back in 2010, they're just waiting to see, you know how they can spend their MAGA bucks. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh what are you going to spend your maga bucks on? Golden guns or, or... <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm I'm I actually in all seriousness. You, you uh, don't have to answer metals. that. But. <laughs> no, pre- <laughs> precious metals is what is right. is uh, you know, but they were they were floating this idea and I, I don't think this ended up in the final bill, but they were floating this idea of doing it as a as a, a digital dollar, you know, yeah. where you have a wallet and they were kind of trying to be all crypto-y and basically this was just a way to control where you spent the money. Yeah. Um and so that was creepy. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, let's talk about, uh, get back to the 10th amendment center. Um, tell me about some of your bigger, uh, bigger successes that the 10th amendment center has had.
1: Well, I think when you look at the, you know, we consider ourselves as part of the broader nullification movement. And I think if you look at the, uh, uh, the political landscape, certainly the biggest success that we've seen in practical nullification is uh, the widespread legalization of marijuana. Uh, at this point, we have 11 states that have legalized completely. We have 33 states with medical marijuana, and yet the federal government still insists that we have uh, complete prohibition of cannabis. Obviously, we don't, and that's the ugly little secret. That's the power that we have as states and as localities. We can stop a lot of this federal overreach simply due to the fact that the federal government requires state and local cooperation for almost everything that it does. And it's interesting because if you go back to Federalist 46, back before the Constitution was even ratified, James Madison gave us this blueprint. He said, if the federal government commits unwarrantable acts, by that he meant unconstitutional, he said even warrantable acts... Happened to be unpopular. He's the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. And then he lists some things that they could do, and some of them were, you know, uh, governors could protest and things like that. But the most significant one that he listed was a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. Those were his exact words. That's exactly what we're pushing to do at the 10th Amendment Center, and that's exactly what. Uh, marijuana legalization at the state level does. It refuses to cooperate with federal prohibition. And when that happens, the federal government can't maintain prohibition because it depends on state and local enforcement. 99 out of 100 marijuana arrests happen through state law. So when you erase the state law, you're erasing 99% of the enforcement. Uh, we could apply this to all kinds of things. Uh, you know, everything from gun control to health care uh, to um you know, even sound money. So that's what we try to do. We take this marijuana model and we try to apply it to all different things using this anti-commandeering, this refusal to cooperate strategy.
0: Yeah. Let's drill down on that a little bit more. So in, uh, with the war on drugs, is it, uh, from my, I, I was a newspaper reporter for a while, about 10 years ago and, mm-hmm. uh, local, um, uh, small town, uh, suburban and small town, ohio and there was you know drugs and typically uh like as you said it would be like the county drug task force or the local pds who are making these arrests and then they get on the horn if they have if they get a bigger fish then they call the Mm -hmm. dea for for whatever so what's been um what's been happening on the marijuana thing are are they just not they're they're not generating those arrests so the tips aren't going back up to the dea and the dea is like how's that actually working
1: well, when you have legalization – so let's, let's look at a state like Colorado uh, who has gone full tilt, and they were one of the first. Washington state was actually the first to completely legalize, but Colorado is probably the best known. Um, in effect, state and local police are not involving themselves in the enforcement of marijuana laws at all. So it's basically left to the DEA. To kind of do it on their own and they don't have the personnel or resources and that's the you know that's the dirty little secret so and, and you can see this if you've ever watched as a reporter you've probably seen some of the photos from drug busts or you know the, the press releases you end up with one dea agent and about 37 <laughs> county deputies and 14 state and local cops. Well, you take away all those other dudes, you're left with one DEA agent. He's not going to enforce a whole lot. So that's really how it's working. And and what's happened along the way is that, in effect, the federal government's just given up. And uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people think, well, the only reason that this has worked is because Obama was soft on drugs. The truth of the matter is, in his first term, his first four years, the Obama administration actually spent more money On marijuana enforcement than bush and clinton before him he didn't give up until that second term when it became clear that we cannot enforce this it just can't be done so now we're at the point that uh, congress has effectively prohibited the doj from even prosecuting medical marijuana users as long as they're abiding by state laws so you know it's just it's basically pulled the teeth out of federal enforcement uh, and, and it 's going to continue to do so, and eventually the federal government 's going to realize that it 's fighting a losing battle, and it 'll legalize marijuana, and everybody'll cheer the federal government and act like, "Oh, our benevolent yeah. overlords have allowed us to have marijuana when in reality it was state action, and, and really, I have to emphasize this ultimately it 's individual action because yeah. it doesn 't work unless there are people that, are, that, that want whatever it is that the federal government's trying to prohibit. Uh, people obviously want weed. Uh, whether they just want to get high or whether they recognize the medical value of it. And and when you have people who are willing to say, you know what, I don't really care what the powers that be say, I'm going to do this. And then you start having local and state action that makes it easier for people to do this. You get more people doing it and it creates a market. And, you know, ultimately markets are more powerful than governments. And uh, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the way we look at the, uh, the, the evolution of marijuana. It's created a market, a bigger market. And as that market grows, it becomes more uh, and more difficult to tamp it down. We we saw the same thing with hemp and CBD. You know, a little fact, you can go to any street corner and buy CBD. The the, uh, FDA still says that you cannot put uh, CBD in food. You can't consume it. It's against the law, technically. (laughs) You know, so uh, basically the the whole strategy is just thumb your nose at the feds and let them try to enforce it. And uh, there there you go.
0: There has been – You know, through my lifetime, you know, there's always been like normal and and groups like that who Mm -hmm. they're kind of coalition groups. There's lefties and righties and libertarians in there. Um, And and marijuana has been, you know, we know it's not near as dangerous and probably not dangerous at all. Um, It's much more socially acceptable now because of the medical uses and stuff. But the real problems that we see from the drug war are from the fact that opiates and smack and cocaine uh-huh. and meth are illegal. How do we? I, I don't see the jump between people saying, "Oh, okay, it's okay to get high because I, you know, I've everybody's got high. You know, mo- half the people have gotten high at least once." But I, I think when I do talk about this to to normies, they're like. Hmm. Well, we can't do that with meth or heroin. So how do you, do you, do you see this breaking out into any other drug or or where do you see this going once we kind of fully win on marijuana?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's an evolution of, of thought and it's an evolution of ideas and it's a long game. And I think we have to remember that. I mean, you know, you you can go back to the eighties when I was a kid, there was no way that anybody was going to legalize marijuana. Right and it's amazing actually how fast that has changed i mean you know we're starting to see those those state barriers fall in places that you would never expect like utah you know utah was the last place that i ever expected would yeah. legalize marijuana for any reason because of the strong influence of the mormon church there so you know things do change that's where the education part of the work of the 10th Amendment Center and other people who are liberty-minded is so important. We've got to continue pushing the message out and 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 building on the victories that we have as, as you know, take those foundations and keep pushing the message further. Uh, you know, we've seen that a little bit already beginning with the psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, again, yeah. you have a situation there where um, there is some medical use for it, so that helps get your foot in the door. But I think, you know, with a lot of things, you get you get it implemented, and people realize, oh wait, the world didn't come to an end, and and then you can you can start picking off people on the edges. And I you know I see more and more people, uh, particularly younger people, who are way more open than anybody in my generation ever was to a more comprehensive full legalization. I imagine it would start with something you know decriminalization and treatment options and those types of things, but. Um, I think those those things will change, but we have to be vigilant and persistent in uh, messaging liberty and and pointing out that the the disaster that is the drug war, which isn't hard to do. I mean, you know, uh, there there are so many ramifications from the drug war, from police militarization to asset forfeiture to uh, you know incarceration rates, uh, everything. What stems it does to race
0: relations war. and all that too. It's yeah, just, all it, of that it, stuff. It's it's. Uh, Um, Of course, I always tell people if they really want to understand um, the drug war, especially people who, you know, I came from a church background and all of my Mm -hmm. people are pretty conservative. But, you know, you try to get them to watch a show like The Wire. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that. I didn't. Okay. Well, it's a great, great show. It's probably one of the top two or three best TV shows ever. It's about the drug war in Baltimore. Oh, wow. And it really, really shows just the the complete, how that it, it affects every single level of society. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that, that we're seeing some things, uh, on marijuana. Of course, we helped a little bit, uh, the Mises caucus with that decriminalized Denver. Uh, yeah. we did a little campaigning there at the end and, and we're exploring different ways to do that with, with psychedelics as well. Yep. We'll get back to my interview with Michael Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center in just a second. But I need to plug the Libertarian Party, Mises Caucus, and Mises PAC. As you know, that's who brings you this uh, podcast. Uh, We're all about bringing an understanding of Austrian economics and an emphasis on radical political decentralization, not only to the Libertarian Party as far as who we elect as officers of the party and who our presidential nominee is, but we want to see that uh, trickle down to candidates at the local level. We supported uh, eight or nine candidates uh, last November to the tune of six or seven thousand dollars. Uh, all of them were great candidates who got our message and who were able to talk about what real libertarianism is about and the need for decentralization. We want to increase that, we want to at least double that this, this year. Uh, as November is a few months away and we don't know exactly what's going to happen between now and then, I know a lot of you are having um, some financial uncertainty. If you are, don't feel guilty that you can't help. Um, those of you who can help, we appreciate it through this time. So you can go to lpmisescaucus.com donate, set up a monthly contribution there so we can continue to prepare for We hope the Libertarian Party National Convention will take place in Austin and over Memorial Day or sometime. uh, Perhaps it's going to be a remote convention. We're we're going to find out, but we want to be prepared for that. And one way you can be prepared is also by just getting our uh, regular email updates at lpmesascaucus.com. Just uh, go over there and uh, get on our, our email list. You never get more than one a week unless it's a, a big emergency or, or something like that. So it's not a lot of spam, but it will keep you in touch with what we're doing with the LP and beyond. Another thing that we're going to be doing that we already are doing is uh, we're trying to get some uh, second amendment sanctuary resolutions together in Texas, a little coalition down there. And we're working on issues, coalitions and things like that, as well as, libertarian candidates and, and reforming the libertarian party. So please head on over to the website, find out more information, sign up for the email list. And if you can leave us a contribution, let's talk about uh second amendment uh, that, yeah. that nobody's talking about it. Well, I guess nobody's talking about the Virginia stuff now because of yeah. the COVID 19. But uh, you know, we saw Northam, and uh backed by the the bloomberg freshman i guess in the legislature uh hey we're gonna pass the we're gonna go from being one of the better uh states on on two-way rights to to one of the more restrictive Uh um and then you saw a lot of things happen you saw a lot of protests and you saw a lot of these uh local localities passing resolutions uh saying we're not going to cooperate with this my question is are they with those localities it's a resolution not a law so talk about the difference there yeah but are they really gonna i don't see some of these some of these mayors and sheriffs maybe some maybe not so where do you see this going um especially you know now we have some states banning gun sales or suspending gun Mm. sales right now um so where do you see decentralization helping on, on second amendment
1: yeah, so I'll I'll uh, preface my comments by saying that I'm rather skeptical of, uh, we'll just call them gun people for 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 shorthand, uh, your Second Amendment folks. I am skeptical of their backbone when push really comes to shove. Uh, I've I've made the comment before that gun people need to take a page from the playbook of the weed people. Uh, And that means just doing what you think is right and quit waiting for federal permission. So much of what is done in the Second Amendment movement is designed to create a Supreme Court case so that we can go to the Supreme Court and get the court to give us better gun rights. To me, this is an absolutely losing strategy. And we saw a lot of that even in Virginia, a lot of these resolutions and, and a lot of the the yapping. When you really dug down to it it was all designed to create a legal challenge and you know to give the opportunity to go to court um again i have absolutely no faith in five politically connected lawyers protecting your right to keep and bear arms and if that's your strategy and I'll say that with any issue, if your strategy is to use the Supreme Court to make America a freer place, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed because these are all politicians, they're all policymakers, they're all government officials, they're all sociopaths, just like the uh, the congressmen and, and the executive branch people. So, bad strategy. That said, I do like the idea of a resolution as a first step. Um, and let's let's make a distinction here. Uh, in in most counties, uh, there are two ways, two things that a county or a city government can do. They can pass a resolution. These are generally non-binding. They're statements of opinion. They uh, they kind of set a tone or a precedent. Uh, they say we think we should do this, uh, but they have no legal force. So. These resolutions that were passed, and almost all of them—I think all of them—in Virginia were actually resolutions. Uh, have no legally binding uh, teeth in them at all. So, you know, there's, there's, you're not going to uh, stop federal gun control by saying we think we should stop federal gun control. Uh, on the other hand, counties and cities can pass ordinances. Ordinances are laws, just like you know what Congress would pass. These are legally binding. And ultimately, what counties and states need to do is pass laws that prohibit enforcement of gun control. Again, withdrawing participation in the gun control. This is particularly effective when it comes to fighting federal gun control because the federal government, it's already well established in uh, the judicial system in America that the federal government cannot force a state or local government to use personnel or refor- resources to enforce a federal law or implement a federal program. They can't do it. It's illegal. They can't even say – they can't even take your funding away, which is the uh, dirty law secret that allows the immigration sanctuary cities to continue on. Uh, they're I say that with a caveat. You can take some funding, so funding that's directly related. So if you refuse to uh, enforce federal gun control, the federal government could withhold funds that were based on law enforcement and and that type of thing. But they can't take away your road funds because you refuse to enforce federal gun control. Can't do it. So this is an extremely effective uh, uh, strategy. It's the next step after a resolution. So fine, pass the resolution. You know, It's a good first step creates a, uh, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for a foundation I guess it lets people know this is what we intend to do but you have to take the next step after that uh, and then implement something that actually has some uh, legal teeth to it and unfortunately that's what we did not see happening in Virginia it was all resolutions it was all talk it was all designed to create a lawsuit and create a store now granted I think that the hue and cry that we saw in Virginia did uh, stop some of the worst of the gun control stuff from passing. Uh, so, you know, chalk that up to a win, but ultimately you need to have this refusal to cooperate. You need to have teeth where you're saying we are not going to enforce this. I do need to add another caveat here. It's just so people understand and and not to get too deep into the weeds, but there is a difference between the relationship between the state and the federal government Mm -hmm. and the relationship between a state and the county and the city. Uh, Basically, states have full control over counties and cities, so it's very difficult for a county to say we're not going to do something that the state tells us to do. I mean they can try to do it, but the state has legal recourse. The state can actually – the state could technically dissolve a city. Uh, It can fire all of the people in the city government, Uh, whereas the relationship between the federal government and the state – the federal government doesn't have that power. The state is a sovereign political entity, and uh, so the the federal government has very – uh, much less control. So it's more difficult for a county or a city to resist a state government than it is for the state to resist the federal government.
0: What are some states in, in, in the current union uh, that are that are better at decentralized down to the local level? Are there any that stand out?
1: I think, you know, it really depends on the issue. Okay. Yeah. And you know it's interesting because it's, our strategy at the Tenth Amendment Center has evolved quite a bit. I, I've been with the organization for 10 years now. And when I first started, we really were focusing kind of on a state by state level and kind of trying to do you know decentralization in Tennessee and decentralization in California or whatever state you want to name. And we found that, first off, it's difficult to get volunteers in every state. But we found that we have, were much more effective in our legislative initiatives if we do issue-based, uh, coalitions and focus issue by issue. So instead of, you know, trying to do broad decentralization in Alabama, we'll focus on things in Alabama that we can, that we can get done. So for instance, uh, this last year, Alabama passed a law that, uh, got rid of marriage licenses and, and just went to a registration of, of marriages that have already occurred. So, you know, that was something we could do in Alabama. Like I said, California is really good on surveillance. A lot of the quote-unquote lefty states, we've been very successful in reigning in the surveillance state, uh, whereas you see a state like Oklahoma or Missouri, uh, you're going to have more success pushing Second Amendment uh, type of surveillance policies. So our strategy really is to create, you mentioned it earlier, broad-based coalitions, left-right coalitions, left-right libertarian coalitions on the given issue and then working those in states where we have the best chance of, of pushing them forward. Um, so, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the strategy that we've been doing. So it's hard to say, you know, one state is better than another because some of the states that are really good on some things, uh, they're really yep. horrible on others. Yep. And, you know, even, even people who talk about, you know, we're for the 10th amendment and the constitution, uh, you know, that they say that until it comes time to, uh, you know, stop the surveillance state. And then all of a sudden they become, uh, you know, big nationalists. So it just depends on the issues.
0: Right. Right. And that, that's why we're, uh, I know Michael Heiss gets a lot of advice from Michael Bolden and you guys over there. And we, we keep track over what you're doing. And, uh, we're, I think we're trying to get a two a resolution movement off the ground in Texas right now. Um, and things like that. So I think you're right. And from my, you know, I've been involved with the LP for about 10 years and by far what gets people, you know, normal people, um, interested in do in in either the LP or in something like a, a nullification movement. It's that specific issue. We find people come in and say, Oh, they, they started doing this on guns and that was the last straw. I left the Republicans because of that or whatever. So that you're right. That's it's uh, I think it's a, it's a long game, like you said too. um, But I think it can, um, can really work. One of my uh, favorite uh, people in American history who kind of, uh, talked about this a lot was uh uh William Lloyd Garrison, you know, the great yep. abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And I think people um I think Michael Bolden's always good to point out that uh far from you know nullification being something that is uh merely the intellectual plaything of, you know, segregationists and slave owners and we came up with this just because we want to be able to do that. Right. It was it was it was those guys in the eighteen twenties and thirties and even before who were saying we should not uh cooperate with the slave catchers the yeah. the local magistrates should not allow them to uh to uh, arrest and and store someone in jail for a while you know so um it is it takes men and women of character mm-hmm. intersecting on issues and people will see how it works and i think that's that's where we're going to we're going to have some victories
1: Yeah, and I tell you what's cool is it allows those of us who have uh, a strong philosophical foundation for liberty to interact with people who share our passion about an issue but don't necessarily understand our philosophical underpinnings. And when you start working together with folks uh, and, and find those common areas of agreement, it becomes easier to have rational discussions about areas of disagreement. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, one of my main policy focus areas over the last, uh, three or four years has been surveillance, um, to the point that I actually ended up getting myself sued by Lexington, Kentucky over some open records requests that I made. And, uh, the ACLU of Kentucky is representing me in, in that, uh, still ongoing lawsuit that we're now almost, uh, heading towards three years on. Mm-hmm. But, um, one day I had lunch with the uh, the policy director for the ACLU of Kentucky, and you know we were talking about specific things with surveillance. And then as things do when you're having lunch with somebody, the conversation wandered here and there, and we started talking a little bit more about philosophy. And I started sharing, you know, uh, my belief in, in non-aggression, and uh, you know the fact that basically everything that the government does uh, is backed up with we will shoot you. And, uh, you know, at the end of the conversation, she says, you know what you said makes a lot of sense. Maybe I'm an anarchist. Yep. <laughs> so you know, I don't think she's all the way down that path, but we had a really fruitful conversation and found a lot of common ground. Whereas a lot of times you would just say, Oh, we can't talk to that person because she's on the left. You know, yep. she has pronouns in front right. of her name, yeah, right. uh, you know, she does. But so what, you know, yep. uh, we can find these areas of agreement. And then I believe that our philosophy is compelling because it's simple and it, resonates with what most people believe. You don't hit people, you don't take their stuff. Yep. Most people intuitively say, "Yeah, that that makes sense to me." And when we can get people to see that basically all government is is a, a bunch of goons hitting us and taking our stuff, uh, you know, people start to to click in on that. So,
0: yep. Um, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, how did you get to be a libertarian? What what gave uh, you the uh, what? How did your life go wrong that you <laughs> that you turned into into one of us?
1: So I joke that um, the 10th the Amendment is the uh, the gateway to libertarianism. Uh, I actually came I came from the right. I was a card carrying neoconservative. Uh, I, I would probably have been termed up until I was about 40 as kind of religious, right? So I've a similar background to you, very conservative, uh, Christian brought up in that worldview and, uh, you know, devoted Rush Limbaugh listener, me supported too. all the wars. Rush um, Limbaugh
0: is the one who made me a libertarian. I just followed all his arguments to their logic, their conclusion. logical
1: conclusion. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I got caught up like a lot of people in the tea party movement, uh, after, uh, you know, the crisis in 2008, we had all the spending and all the stimulus that, you know, I was joking about that before all the Tea Party people are wanting their mega bucks now. Uh, for me, it stuck. And, you know, I had just graduated. I went back to school uh, as, an, as an old person and got a second degree in journalism and, you know, loved to write and thought, where can I use my writing talent to kind of make a difference? You know, I was at that point. Figured that standing in a park holding a sign really wasn't going to change the world. So uh, just started searching around, ran across the Tenth Amendment Center, and I had always had this intuitive – and I think this is true of a lot of people that come from the right – this idea in my head that I'm for limited government. And I knew enough to know that the Tenth Amendment was a limiting thing in the Constitution and that the the government had gone off the rails. uh, I didn't understand that the Republicans were just as guilty as the Democrats. Uh, that took a little bit. But I just got involved with the Tenth Amendment Center. And, you know, as it turns out, they're uh, connected to all kinds of crazy, radical libertarians. So, right. you know, the next thing you know, I'm one, one day I'm reading the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. And the next next thing you know, I'm reading Rothbard. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, I guess, probably a four or five year journey. But um Eventually, I, I became a card carrying anti statist. Right. And uh, the the kind of the last card to fall for me was the foreign policy. You know, right. and I think that's true of a lot of a lot of us that love love the wars. And the, you know, the thing that really changed my mind, and this sounds really simple in retrospect, but it was a speech by Tom Woods. And he made the comment that the same awful people that you hate that are running the domestic policy are also running the foreign policy. Yeah. And I thought, uh oh, <laughs> why would that and be that, any different? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that kind of took me down the wormhole. And then, uh, you know, a lot of soul searching over the last several years to really trying to, to uh, reconcile my faith with my political views and and found that, you know, being a Christian, it fits very the, the idea of love your neighbor as yourself is a very libertarian concept. And uh, so, yeah,
0: that's how I think I I've um, became a libertarian uh, is um, I said Rush Limbaugh. And actually he had Walter Williams would guest host. Some right. back, and this is back in the early Who's t-
1: the only person I've ever heard on national radio talk about nullification.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's amazing. Um, I hope he's, I know he's getting up there in age. I actually thought the other day I should try to get him on here. I don't know. I don't think I can, but I'm going to try. Yeah. I don't try. think he I'm, does interviews. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's getting up there, but, uh, um, so talk about, um, uh, let's say I wanted to go two different ways on this. Let's talk about. Uh, the journalism first, uh, you, you went back, uh, uh, you, you didn't have a background in journalism and then you got a master's in it or tell, how, how did that w- work out?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I did not have a background in journalism, loved to write, always loved to write, um, spent the first half of my adult life as a musician. And, uh, we won't go through my, my entire life story, but long and short of it is I ended up in the airline industry and was kind of trying to get in their corporate communications because I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed writing and, and found that the lack of any type of writing background or degree was kind of holding me back from that. Yeah. So I eventually decided, you know, I'm going to go back to school. And it was uh, – I was working for Delta Airlines at the time. Delta was, was going bankrupt and there was a lot of pay cuts. And it just got to the point that it was worthwhile to go back to school. And uh, so I actually got a second bachelor's in journalism. Okay. So I have a, I have a bachelor's in accounting and a bachelor uh, in journalism. So put those two together. Um, and you know it's funny because like I said, my initial plan was I'm going to go into corporate communications, public relations, that kind of thing. I fell in love with with actual journalism, with reporting when I was in school, and uh, mainly because I had some really good professors. And uh, ended up uh, working for the Saint Petersburg Times. It's the Tampa Bay Times now, but at times at the time it was the Saint Petersburg Times, and uh, I just loved. Being a reporter, loved the whole journalism thing. Loved chasing down the story. And uh, eventually, after I got out of school, I moved back to Kentucky and I was a sports editor for a while, which combined my my love for sports and writing. And then I was also a uh, uh, did the web content for the NBC affiliate in Lexington, Kentucky for for about five years. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of done newspaper, I've done TV, and uh, and then I realized that I can make a lot more money doing marketing. <laughs>
0: so Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what school did you go to for journalism?
1: I went to the university of South Florida, St. Petersburg.
0: Okay. And then were you at the, Le- what is it? The Herald leader in Lexington? Was that where you were or somewhere else? No,
1: I was at the, uh, I was at a weekly in okay. Lexington, the, the Woodford sun in Versailles, Kentucky. Okay. Cool. For those are familiar with the, it's supposed to be Versailles for, yeah, yeah. for those of you who are not from, Kentucky, yeah. but we call it Versailles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. <laughs> We've got all kinds of places in uh, uh, Ohio yes, that are, the, that are pronounced the way we want to pronounce them. Right. Um, yeah. So what do you think about, uh, I, you know, I have a master's in journalism and I did it for a while, both in radio and, and newspaper. And I kind of got sick of it for, for different reasons. Um, and now I, I, I almost never, well, I, first of all, I never watch cable news ever, ever. Yeah, ever. I don't either. Um, and I very, very seldom read a newspaper, read a newspaper. Um, what do you think of the, the current, you know, uh, uh, corporate media, as Michael Malice uh, likes to accurately call it? And, and where do you get your
1: news? So I kind of fall in the middle in terms of my view of media. I'm a little bit uncomfortable in one way with with making the media all one big conglomerate because it's not and I had the privilege of working with some really really good reporters over the years particularly when I was at the St. Petersburg Times I wasn't there for long but uh, just some fantastic people who cared about digging up the truth and um, so I'm not as negative about journalism as some people, and I don't believe that there's some massive conspiracy out there to manipulate our worldview, that there's some three or four people pulling the strings in the corporate media. I, my experience in, in working in television really bore this out to me. I always had this sense, but watching it in action really bore this out. The real problem is it's a follow the leader mentality. Yep. You, you have a group of people that by and large share a political worldview they share a, a frame, if you will, to use a journalistic term, and so everything gets hung in that frame. It's not because there's a conspiracy. It's just because they all think the same. And there is tremendous pressure against anybody who starts to buck against the edges of that frame, you know, to to invoke Tom Woods' three by five index card of allowable opinion. That's very, very true in the media world. The other problem that you see in media is there is a vast over-reliance on official sources, uh, particularly in television news. Everything is police say, police say, you know, yeah. according to this press release, uh, there's very little curiosity to question the narratives of officials, yep. uh, which is weird because most people that go into journalism, you know, that's kind of the thing. We're supposed to question all of the authorities, but right. somehow that gets lost. So uh, I, I think journalism is in a pretty, pretty bad state uh, because it is so follow the leader, and and it, there is such a uh, overwhelming abundance of group thing. That say, said I think there are some really good. Individuals doing good work, and you just kind of have to find those people you trust and uh, you know, you kind of follow them. I think Glenn Greenwald has, has done a fantastic job, yep. despite his bit of a left wing bias. Uh, he does some fantastic reporting. Caitlin Johnson, Johnston, she's really good, at least as far as foreign policy and war. My, my. News gathering is I try to read a lot of different stuff. You know, I'll read the mainstream Washington Post articles uh, and then I'll try to read some of the uh, alternative press on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and, and then I also like to check out particularly for foreign foreign news. Uh, sometimes reading international news is interesting. BBC, Al Jazeera, just because you get a different perspective. And, uh, you know, I, my philosophy is kind of take everything with a grain of salt. uh bring those four sources together and coalesce. And, and, uh, but it is hard. And, you know, I've really struggled with this whole coronavirus thing, trying to figure out, okay, what's true. I have no idea.
0: Right? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a jungle out there. And, uh, one thing that you said, uh, the media relying on official sources, that was probably the biggest thing that got to me was that, um, as the paper that I was at, I, I could tell, Financially, things were going bad and we had Uh fewer and fewer resources uh, all the time. And it was already, uh, you know, small town and suburban papers. You have it it almost feels like you're the uh, PR department of the local government and the local chamber of commerce. And as the resources go down, you're more dependent on those core advertisers. And Uh you have, you know, so uh, I found that when I would. And I didn't do anything just, uh, uh, tremendously remarkable. But when I would talk to sheriffs and cops and stuff about, Hey, this doesn't jibe with what you said earlier. And, uh, a couple of times I saw something happen. And then when they report, when they did the press release, they lied about it. And, yeah. uh, Um, I didn't get very far with those things. My bosses didn't really back me up that much. So, um, it's, uh, it's a shame because there are a lot of, I think you're right. There are a lot of good people out there who want to do good work and and would if they had the support.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I saw, you know, again, particularly I spent most of my, my time being a sports editor, that's a whole different ball of wax, but uh, most of my news time was spent at a TV station, and in Lexington was kind of the second step in the TV station hierarchy. So, you know, you get out of college, you have your first job in in podunk West Virginia, and then you come right. to Lexington, and you'd see these kids, and they'd come in, and they'd be gung ho, and really, you know. Trying to pitch great stories, and then after about two years, you know, it's like the life has been beat out of them, and they're just like, oh, "Give me the press release." You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's a it's a grinding job. I don't think people realize what a difficult job uh, being a reporter is, and, and the time deadlines, and the the horrible hours, and all of those things. So, yeah, I I, I I have a lot of sympathy for my my fellow journalists, but you know, that doesn't excuse some of the the bad reporting that's out there as well. So.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh do you still do the Godarchy podcast and website? I, I do indeed. Okay, tell tell us what that's all about and how uh were you a Christian first or a libertarian first? Probably the the latter, you said, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I I became a Christian in my teens. Uh you know, I don't want to go through my whole spiritual journey. If you're interested in that, there's a Godarchy episode. You can go to godarchy.org click the podcast button and, and go down towards the early episodes. And I actually have, this is my story and I tell the, <laughs> tell right. the whole story. But, uh, okay. um, the Godarchy was, is kind of my, you know, 10th amendment center. That's my practical politics. Shift gold, uh, helps me pay the bills. Uh, Godarchy is my passion. Um, I, like I said, there's been a lot of soul searching for me over the last, gosh, four or five years, really trying to reconcile my, my, Spiritual beliefs my political worldview philosophy all of those things I think I was like a lot of Americans who who tend to compartmentalize things You know you've got your 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 faith here and your politics are here and your work is here and all these things are separate And I don't think that's a healthy way to live And so part of the reason I I started Godarchy for two reasons the first was I just wanted a place to explore these ideas and how uh, libertarian voluntarism intersects with Christianity just to give me a platform to kind of flesh those things out on my own. And then also I wanted to create an anti-war voice in Christendom, uh, because I am so sick of warmongering in the church. It just absolutely drives me crazy. Um, you know, my number one issue is war. If I had the magic wand, I could get rid of one thing. It would be the wars, you know, um, and uh, so, so that's why I started. It started out just as a website with me writing. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, I started the Godarchy podcast. And uh, really, I, I, that's that, to me, it's just fun. That's fun for me. Uh, uh, the last episode I did, I talked to uh, a friend of mine, Suzanne Sherman, who is a prepper. And uh, we talked about preparedness, and you know that's a, a rather important topic now, as yeah. as you can't find toilet paper in your grocery store. Um, but I've you know I've covered education, we've covered uh, with with Carrie Baldwin or abortion with Kerry Baldwin. Uh, I've, I've talked to uh, uh, Maj over at Black Guns Matter. Had a bunch of really cool guests. I've had Tom Woods on. We talked about his book uh, about the church and the market. Um, so yeah, like I said, I. I don't make any money off of it, really. You can go to godarchy.org/patreon and support me if you'd like. That would be nice. But okay. uh, like I said, it's it's my it's my passion, and, and I really just have a passion to kind of try to to mold those two worlds together. Because a lot of people say, well, how can you be a libertarian or how can you be an anarchist? I hate the term anarchist, by the way. But right. uh, how can you do that and be a Christian? Well, that's that's what we talk about over at Godarchy.
0: Haven't you read Romans 13, Mike? Come on.
1: I I know. And I'm just flummoxed by that. I, I, I'm ready to (laughs) seek Heil to the Fuhrer. Right,
0: right, right. (laughs) Well, he, the, the Fuhrer wouldn't like the tattoo you've got on your arm there.
1: Right. I probably shouldn't have done that. Seek Heil. Somebody's going to take that out of context (laughs) and and say, it's the Mises caucus website. Mike Meharry (laughs) was seek Heiling Hitler. He must be a Nazi. (laughs) No. Not a Nazi, by the way. Really? Okay. I I, I keep,
0: I keep looking (laughs) for these alt-right and Nazi types and in, in our movement. And I don't find many of them. Yeah, there, there are a few that I'm are not. gone, but hey, listen, I don't want to get into that. No, that's, uh, that's a whole other today, ball of life. But I, 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 I
1: say that in jest, but there are people that would, that would be stupid enough to take something like that. I've been called a neo-Confederate for years. And yeah. So, you know, there's that.
0: It's yeah. It's kind of uh, ridiculous. I, I, I really agree with what you said about war though. And especially, um, you know, the church and their, you know, kind of, most, you know, sort of evangelical uh, Christians are very supportive of, you know, the military. They think they're keeping us safe and stuff. How do you get from, how did we get as a, as the church from worshiping the Prince of Peace to supporting uh, the warfare state out of fear?
1: You know, I think honestly, I think that traces all the way back to about four or 500 A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think things really went off the rails when the uh, Roman state adopted Christianity as the state religion. Yep. And from that point on, you started to see this, the church and the state start to intertwine and weave together. And, you know, that's really never changed. There's, there's been outliers uh, along the way. But by and large, that has, has dominated Christian thought, and uh, so you know I think I think it's embedded. And um, you know we could get into some spiritual aspects of it. I think that the state is is a principality. It's run yeah. by it's run by the uh, the evil powers, whatever you want to call those. And I think in a lot of ways the, the state has a uh, almost a personality of its own. You know we talk about corporate culture. Uh, if you've ever taken a management class it's a big thing corporate culture and corporations do have culture uh you know Disney has a certain culture police departments have a have a certain culture you know, thought <laughs> <laughs> right uh, and the state has a culture so these are these are what Paul was talking about when he talked about principalities and and spiritual forces and so I think that those have dominated the institutional church to a large degree and and people are just blinded. And, you know, it's, it's all propaganda. You know, you just, from the time we're little kids, we go to school and we put our hand over our heart and we pledge allegiance to the flag. And, you know, we have the presidents up on the wall, peering down at us benevolent, benevolently. And we're taught that the state is going to take care of us. And when you're taught that all your life, it is difficult to get out of that mindset. Now, once you take that red pill, it's like, Ooh, this is all creepy and gross. But, um, you know, I, 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 I try to be sympathetic to people because that's what they were raised to believe. Uh, that said, it gets really frustrating when, when you see people and you point out, uh, you know, this says love your enemies, not obliterate them with napalm. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think we need more people who are people of faith who are really hammering on the very basic fundamental teachings of Christ, which I think, you know, even if you're not a believer, I think – you can embrace these ideas of of love your neighbor, uh, live peaceably, you know, the, all these things that, that Jesus taught or, or we're teaching, and we've lost those in, in some kind of institutional religion that emphasizes, you know, going down to the altar and, and quote, unquote, get saved and then right. go do whatever you want. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um- Let's uh, we got a f- just a few minutes left. I want to talk about sports just a little bit because I'm, ah. I'm, I'm going to I'm going through some hard times here. But before we get Ugh. there, give me a few uh, Christian authors that uh, our audience might like and also some libertarian writers that you like.
1: Uh, the, the, see, now I'm not going to be able to remember the, the names of the people. I read a fantastic book. It's called Caesar and the Lamb. Yep. And uh, it has it has basically chronicles the early church and the position towards war and, and peace. And I can't remember the author of that book. Uh, William Stringfellow is a theologian that I really, really like in terms of, of his dealings with the uh, uh, the state and the church. Um, he wrote a book called, oh, gosh, it's this huge, long title with a ridiculous subtitle. Um, it's basically Christian ethics, ethics in an alien world is, is a summation of it. And he's the, where I got this idea of the state being a principality, yeah. uh, fantastic stuff from him. Um, I just finished a book by Kreider, which is, um, let see, I, I can't remember the title of this book, but, um, it was basically a tracing of the early church and, and how, uh, the church grew in the early days without using conquest or violence. So those are the types of things that I'm attracted to. And then your typical C.S. Lewis, uh, Bonhoeffer, those types of, of authors that people are more familiar with. Um, in terms uh, of, by the way,
0: uh, Caesar and the Lamb is George Kalantzis, K A K-A-L-A, L A, so it's on Amazon. For that's right, twenty bucks. And, so.
1: and the first book that I ever really read that really started me on the on the whole Christian in war thing is by uh, Brian Zahn, yep. and and it's called um, Farewell yeah. to Mars. Yeah, that's it's a great a great book. book. Yep, yep. He drives me crazy because uh-huh. <laughs> that dude let, is, that dude is so close. He is. And then he gets off on the rails like he wants the federal government to. Enforce gun control. I'm like, no, right, right. He's <laughs> so,
0: it, it is pretty frustrating. And he's got a good taste in music too, and oh yeah, uh, all that. So anyway, uh, oh,
1: music, see, music's a whole nother wormhole we could go down. Um, you know, libertarian writers. I'm probably you're pretty traditional. I've I've read a lot of Rothbard, um, and you know, Mises. So I've I've not read um, uh, man, Econ- I've read Man Economy instead. I've not read um human action. So I've, I've got that on my list, but
0: I'm a third of the way through it and I've read a lot about it. Um,
1: yeah, I've, I've read a lot about it. That's, yeah, yeah. that's about where I am as well. Um, um
0: let's talk about, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about music, then a little bit about sports. What kind of music are you into? You're a musician. You, 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 I am a musician. you worked in that field or.
1: So I was a uh, I was involved in Christian music back when Christian music was cool back in the eighties. So I'm an eighties kid. <laughs> And uh, I am I am. So my favorite music is I don't even know what you really call it. Uh, my favorite band is The Cure. So you, okay. that, that'll give you some some context. I love what I guess some people call Euro pop or alternative dance music, Depeche Mode, New Order, Joy Division, uh, Joy Division bands like that. Um, I like a lot of the early punk bands, of course, you know, like Sex Pistols and and stuff like that. Uh, And then in the 90s, I kind of got into the Nine Inch Nails and and some of that. But then there's a whole bunch of Christian bands that I was into back in the 80s that nobody's ever heard of. Um, And and it was interesting back then because there was a time when uh, virtually any genre of of music that existed, you could find Christian bands that were playing that style of music. So there was a bunch of Christian punk bands and alternative bands that uh, I, I really was into back in the 80s who, you know, it's interesting going back because they've really held up musically. Um, you know, even into, into the day. So,
0: yeah. And my uh, church youth group, they actually had a poster that, that had like a conversion chart, you know, <laughs> yes, I, I if you like time. REM, listen to this band, right. if you like, right. so, um, so yeah. So do you, you play an instrument?
1: I play, uh, I play a lot of instruments, none of them particularly well. Okay. Um, my, my first instrument that I ever played was saxophone and picked it up again a few years ago and have been playing that quite a bit. Uh, I play guitar, I play keyboards, I play bass. Most of the music that I did, so my ex-wife and I did music together for about 10 years. Okay. And uh our our stuff was Christian bass. We played a lot of youth groups and church events and things like that. But the uh the style and influence of the music was very much in the vein of what I was talking about. A lot of keyboards, uh crunchy guitars and uh drum loops. Okay. So cool. I love to I like to program music. I'm I'm pretty good at the electronic music thing. Um, which kind of compensates for the fact that I'm not really a virtuoso on any instrument.
0: Yeah. I'm going to maybe have to talk to you offline about, uh, I'm trying to teach myself how to do loops and stuff on garage band and I'm oh, yeah. super, I was born in 1975, but sometimes I think that I was born 40 years before because some of the stuff I just can't figure out, but I'm a yeah. guitar player and bass player. Okay. I have wanted to start recording some stuff, uh, Uh, myself so I may I may come back to you offline for for some tips on how to get started Um, so sports I'm a huge baseball fan I live in Dayton Ohio grew up as a Reds fan the Reds of course have the great tradition of you Uh know opening day tomorrow was supposed to be opening day we're playing the hated Cardinals and uh, I'm, I'm hurting man so what what's your sport and how are you handling the the complete lockdown we have right I'm now. not
1: handling it very well. Yeah. Um a friend of mine, Alan Mosley, and I do a podcast actually called Sportsball. Okay. And uh the name is obviously making fun of those those libertarians out there goes hey, to the sports ball game. Right, right. I hate those people. <laughs> right. Um Oh yeah, so it's it's very difficult for me. So I'm not a huge baseball fan, although I do kind of follow the Rays. I, I follow all things Tampa Bay.
0: They're a good team to um, follow. They're they're an they interesting are they're team.
1: they're they're an interesting team and they're fun and uh, they do a lot with a little. Yep. Um, but I'm a hockey player, so okay. hockey hockey is my passion. I've I've played since my early twenties. I actually, when I went back to school to USF, I played for the uh, USF club team for two years. Um and so we should be getting into playoffs right now right. and uh, my beloved Lightning were one of the one of the favorites to make it to the Stanley Cup so yeah it's like particularly on Saturday I'm just uh. so the only thing we have right now is uh is football free agency and and all right. of that and so that's exciting as a Bucks fan because we've got Tom Brady yeah. Um, Although I'm conflicted about that because I can't stand Tom Brady, so yeah, he's
0: I, I don't like him either. He's, but you know
1: what? If the dude gets me a Super Bowl, I might right. change my my opinion on him. So that's
0: that's going to be a great experiment to see how the Patriots do and how the how Brady does. Yeah, and,
1: yeah, it is. Um, is it is? Did Belichick depend on uh, Brady, or is it Brady be, uh, depend on Belichick, or neither of the above? I think Brady's probably got more weapons around him in Tampa uh, than he's had in a long time. I mean, he's got uh, Mike Evans and and. Chris Godwin, who are fantastic receivers, um, so I don't know. You see if they get a running game, they could be. You know, I where, don't know. We'll see. Where Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and then how'd you get I, into hockey then? Yeah, I, I know. Weird, right? Yeah. And the funny thing is, that I really didn't get into hockey until I moved to Florida. Okay. So figure that out, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I actually started playing a little bit. They built the ice rink in Lexington when I was a senior in high school, which was 1985. For folks who want to date me. And, um, but when I went down to Florida, I started playing roller hockey and roller hockey was really big at that point in, in the early nineties going into the mid nineties. In fact, there were some pro roller hockey teams and leagues back in that era. And so I played roller hockey for about a decade before I ever really set foot on ice. Um, and then, uh, transitioned over to ice and, and the rest is history. But, Uh, you know, the year that I moved to Tampa was 1992 and that was the first year that the Tampa Bay lightning were in the NHL. So I actually saw, you know, one of their first games and and kind of grew up with that team.
0: Yeah. Um, so what do you think, uh, what do you think is going to happen with some of these seasons? Do you think we're going to get the NBA and NHL playoffs or what's going to,
1: I don't know. It depends on how long this goes. So I, I think if, you know, Trump's starting to make noise about let's try to get back to normalcy in April. So that would be nice. Yeah. The the NHL has said that it is committed to some playoff structure and they want somebody to raise a cup. So, uh, you know, all I can do is is be hopeful on that. Uh, I don't follow NBA at all, so I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: The, the uh, you know obviously college basketball that's a wash. And you know, think about how sad that is for for guys that were you know seniors and. Uh, like my son goes to Northern Kentucky University and and their team had made the NCAA. And, uh, you know, for those guys, that's a huge big deal that they're never going to get to live out. And um, my, the USF hockey team, uh, they actually made nationals and were the number one ranked team in the uh, South and they, they, their nationals got canned. So so Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing. You know, you don't want to make a light of the people that are dealing with coronavirus and economic impacts and all of that stuff. But, Um, you know, you look at that and you see just how, uh, disruptive this has been for so many people. I mean, my poor daughter, she was in Africa in the peace corps and, and they drug her back to the United States. So she's, she's sitting in quarantine, missing her, her friends in Africa right now. Yeah. Crazy times.
0: Well, I hope, uh, I hope your, your family, uh, gets through all this. Okay. I know we all have people in our families that we're a little bit worried about. Um, so, uh. I've been my wife and I've been praying about it and I think we're going to be fine. We'll be fine. Um, So one last question, we talked a little bit about it earlier. Um, Put on your shift gold hat again. Um, If I, I am wanting to invest not huge amounts, but you know, 50 or hundred bucks, uh, every pay period, you know, every couple of weeks on, on stuff. It, I've heard that you can't really buy gold right now or yeah. what's, t- what, what's the lay of the land and what would you advise people to do in regard to, uh, in, invest uh, investment in, in precious metals right now?
1: Well, I would say this first off, if you have a lot of money sitting around in cash, which probably most of us don't, but, uh, if you do like for instance, my, my sister, um, she and her husband took pretty much all their money out of the stock market pretty early on. So they, they've got this huge bucket of cash. I would advise you if you can to put that in precious metals. Um, because I believe that we're going to have a dollar collapse. I think we are going to have the inflation. We may not have hyperinflation like Zimbabwe, but I think regardless, we're going to see a big devaluation of the dollar and, uh, the hedge against that is, is obviously precious metals. But you're right, it is right now. Uh, I know shift gold is taking uh, minimum orders. Uh, there's a shortage of a lot of bullion products. Uh, premiums are high, so it's difficult, but there are things you can do. Uh, one option is silver um, because you can buy silver, you know, silver's only at I think I think it was 12.05 an ounce this morning, which is incredibly cheap. Uh, in in uh, in retrospect, and here's the interesting thing. If you look at 2008, gold has actually gone down a bit over the last couple of weeks, uh, and this happened in 2008 as well. If you look at the uh, seven months from March 2008 to the end of that year, gold actually declined 26% as the stock market was crashing. Yep. The reason that's happening is people are liquidating their gold for the cash in order to cover margin and and you know deal with the uh, destruction of their stock portfolio. Silver, on the other hand, in that same time period, actually went down like 56%. So almost double what silver went down. But then when it started to recover over the next uh, two years uh, until the peak in 2011, gold went 106% higher from, from its uh, low. And silver actually went up 400 and some percent. Yeah. So silver tends to track gold. It's much more volatile but in a gold bull run, silver actually tends to outperform. So, you know, um, not to get too far into the weeds, but the gold-silver ratio, so or silver-gold ratio, is how I should say it. The amount of silver it takes to buy an ounce of gold right now is like 115. Historically, it's been 50 to 60. So, okay. what that tells you is that silver is way undervalued compared to gold. Okay. Uh, so, I really like silver. Please. Uh, let's make the caveat, I'm not an investment advisor. Right. Don't come and try to sue me if you buy silver and it goes down. I'm not making any guarantees. Uh, this is just you know, looking at historical trends and whatnot. Um, the other option for gold, I know there's some companies like Gold Money. Uh, there's a company out in Utah called United Precious Metals where you can actually buy fractions of gold. Um, I've never really dealt with them don't know but that might be an option and of course there's also things like gold etfs which are essentially stocks that track with the price of gold you don't actually hold own the metal you own a share of this stock it's a way to get into gold without having you know full ounces uh i think the danger of of gold stocks is you don't hold the gold and if you don't really hold it in your hand you don't own it but right. it might be you know it's an option for folks to, to consider as well Um, but I would definitely at this point probably not be in stocks unless you're really smart and and can kind of predict what, you know, what's bottomed and and what might go up. Um, and I would be reluctant to hold a whole lot of cash at this point. So precious metals, uh, silver, maybe crypto, although I'm, I'm not an expert in the crypto world and it's, it's a weird volatile thing in and of itself. But
0: you said Schiff has a current minimum order. What's that? Uh, well, I do, I don't know what okay. it is
1: off the top of my okay. head. It's, it's, um, I, I know initially it was $5,000, okay. but then they shifted it to uh quantity. So it's, okay. it's based on ounces. But if you go to the shift gold rep <clears throat> website, shiftgold.com, uh, you'll get a pop up with a form and it'll tell you what the limits are and actually give you an opportunity to, uh, um, send them a, an email and, and get on the list. Cause they're, those poor, those poor dudes are working like 24 seven right now.
0: Great. Um, you gave the shift gold address. Uh, here's your chance to plug away all your other uh, projects that uh, you yes. want people and mention your books too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> so first thing, first thing that I would like people to do, uh, if you only go to one link, uh, go to 10th amendment Center.com, and that's all spelled out. And, uh, over there, you'll see all of the work that we're doing, the nullification movement. If you go to 10th amendment or blog.10thamendmentcenter.com, Uh, you'll find more specific information on the various issues, uh, various bills in various states. Of course, all the legislatures are shut down right now, so uh, not a lot going on, but uh, once things get back going, that's where you can track what's going on issue by issue. So check that out. We can always use your support. Uh, If you believe in decentralization and nullification, um, I'm biased, but I will say that I don't think anybody practically is doing more. Uh, in, in terms of real practical decentralization work in the political realm than the Tenth Amendment Center. You we're, can trying be a member.
0: To ca- we're trying to catch up to you guys in that regard. You're, well, you guys and, are and an we, example for us. Yeah, and we love
1: working with you guys because uh, you know there's there's power in numbers. Yep. And and you can be a member of the Tenth Amendment Center for as little as like two bucks a month. Yep. So um, it's affordable even in these troubling economic times. Yep. Uh, if you want to check out my personal website, you can go to michaelmeharry.com. Uh, it's just my name spelled all one word. Uh, I do have uh, several books. One you can probably see behind me right there, Constitution Owner's Manual. That's my latest book if you're interested in the Constitution at all. Tom Woods called it the best short book explaining the Constitution he's ever read. So I take that as pretty high praise. Um, And you can actually get more information about that book at constitutionownersmanual.com, and you'll find the various Buying options there. This is a great time to read about the Constitution. Yeah. Right? You're at home, you can't work. Um, I have another book called uh, Our Last Hope: Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, and that's a book about nullification. Uh, it goes through the historical, philosophical, and moral case for nullification. And if folks have read Tom Woods's book, it kind of builds on that. It's more of a um, more of a popular read than academic. I'm a journalist by training, so my writing style tends to be more for general public consumption than academic, which I think is, you know, I think it's a good thing. So, right. uh, and then I've got some other books, uh, smaller books, eBooks. You can find all of that at my website, michaelmeharry.com. And if you're interested in the, uh, aspect of Christianity and voluntarism, go to godarchy.org and you'll find my podcast over there. Great. So I think those are the big things.
0: Uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming on. Uh, we'll have you on again sometime. Hopefully yeah. we'll get Michael uh, Bolden on. Is he doing for okay? Sure. He
1: doing all right. He's good. He's doing pretty good. I mean, they're on total lockdown in LA and yeah. I think it's, I think it's a little bit of, it's gotta be freaky, you know, yeah. when they're telling you not to leave your apartment or leave your house. But, um, I don't know. I saw pictures today. They were out bike riding. So I okay. guess they're, they're, they're making do out there.
0: <laughs> That's good. Hold on. Uh, after we say goodbye, I have a quick question for you. Sure. Uh, but, uh, really appreciate you, uh, coming on, check out the 10th amendment center and, uh, support what they do after you support the Mises caucus, you can do both. Absolutely, um, and so, and, and,
1: and to, and to you guys, I mean, I've been following you guys along from, from the beginning and you guys are doing fantastic work and, you know, I, I don't really get involved in, in electoral politics and and party politics. And part of that's, Uh, strategic in terms of the work we're doing at the 10th amendment center. We don't want to, you know, we want to kind of stay above that, but love what you guys are doing. Uh, I don't, I don't know that there's any single group that's doing more within the libertarian party to really kind of push things forward. So
0: great. Thumbs up to you guys. Thanks Mike. And, uh, so be safe. Hopefully we'll uh, talk soon and and this will all have blown over. So
1: I hope so. All
0: right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. All right. So there you have it. Episode seven of Decentralized Revolution, that all important seventh episode. If you make it that far, uh, they say odds are your podcast will be a success. And thanks to people like you who listen. um, I think we will be a success. We've been getting some nice feedback and uh, a lot of people want to be on the show. And uh, that's been really heartening that I don't have to beg people to come on. So if you do like the show, please post a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use so more people can find it. Uh, It's up on Stitcher now. There was a delay on getting it uh, on there. So if you prefer that, uh, go over to Stitcher, subscribe, and I think you can review us there. Thanks to Michael Meharry for his time and his kind words about the Mises Caucus. And to everyone at the Tenth Amendment Center for all their help and encouragement over the last uh, year or two, especially uh, thanks to Dave vs. Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. Next episode should be up in just a few days with a really great guest, Tim Moen, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. You won't want to miss that. He's a great guest. Thanks for listening to Decentralized Revolution.